Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is incarcerated mothers, intersection of the new Jim and Jane Crow. And and today we're going to talk about an often overlooked group, incarcerated mothers, and the impact the intersections of the criminal justice system and the family law systems has on that population and their children and their communities. I've assembled some great guests today for our discussion, and I will let each of them introduce themselves. First, Carla LaRoche. Good morning. I am Carla LaRoche. I am an assistant clinical professor, tenure track at Washington and Lee University, where I am the founding director um, of the Civil Rights and Racial Justice Clinic at Washington and Lee. And before that, I was a, um, a, a clinical professor at Florida State College of Law, where I also founded and directed the Gender and Family Justice Clinic. I'm originally from Long Island, so I just need to shout that out as well, New York, Um, and I'm so excited to be here this morning. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. And I should say, you know, these are both my colleagues. So it's like, you know, you get to experience some of the Washington and Lee girl squad that we have going on down there. All right. Now, Chantal Smith. Um, good morning. My name is Chantal Smith. Uh, I am an assistant professor in the economics department in the Williams School at Washington Lee University. Um, prior to that, I was a high school teacher um, in the state of South Carolina, which I did that for several years. I am from the Carolinas, so Southern, um, in case you hear the accent. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I am a labor economist by trade. So a lot of my work looks at the intersection of education and racial disparities in the United States. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to discuss this topic. Um, You know, I, I think when we talk about the criminal justice system and we talk about mass incarceration, we don't think about women and families. Or when we think about families, we think about absent fathers, and we don't think about women who are incarcerated and the impact that has on their families. So I'm very excited to highlight some of the issues that arise with this this particular group of people. But before we get into the details, I would like to start with a discussion of why the words matter um, and what kind of language we use to describe these populations. Um, And Carla, in your work, you are especially careful about how you describe your clients. Can you explain what language you use? and why it matters? Sure. Uh, In my research, in my teaching, in my presentations, I want to establish essentially what the guidelines are for our conversation and for our time together. And part of those guidelines is a mutual respect about those in the room and those who are outside the room, right? And so the conversation about language really indicates how we talk about each other as participants in whatever we're doing, if, whether it's my scholarship, whether it's in clinic, um, representing clients. How do we label people, 
as people first, and then what other identifying information or identifying demographic they might have. Uh, there are certain pieces. The CDC recently published in October of 2021 a, a website with preferred terms or key terms in reference to people. And so instead of felons or prisoners or any language that really stigmatizes the person who use people first language. So people who are incarcerated, people with felonies, people who are formerly incarcerated because they are people first. And if we want to get past some of the stigma and some of the, the negativity and really address the social justice issues, we should recognize people as people. You know, what, what that makes me think about um, is the war on drugs and the way that we described people in the 90s. When we're writing the crime bill, we're writing all this legislation, um, you know, what comes to mind is crack mothers, crack babies, drug dealers. We didn't talk about drug addicts or, you know, people who, uh, you know, the way that we describe op- people with opioid addiction now. Um, and, and so, you know, what that wants me to, to transition to, Chantal, is, is to continue to frame this issue uh, and talk about how we've gone from the war on drugs and that dichotomy of crack mothers, crack babies, homes without fathers, who are presumably drug dealers, no real victims in that scenario. Instead of addressing the systemic and social harm that, that, that leads to it and what, what it causes, we talk about the burden they place. But then when we come to the opioid crisis, it's all victims and no perpetrators, right? It's all victims, no perpetrators, except for the pharmaceutical companies and maybe still some drug dealers. And how do these differences in descriptions impact the way our social policy operates um, in, in your work and in things that you've, you've researched? So, you know, I think it depends, uh, at least in my particular field, which is economics, you know, there's been a lot of of that same type of narrative, that same type of language where it's, you know, they have these negative associations. And so there's been a big push about rhetoric in the, in the industry. Um, Anything that, that puts a person in a category that I don't know, see society wants them to be in, right. For instance, um, a lot of times when they look at different types of economic impacts, they'll say, well, Blacks are more likely to do this or or whites are more likely to do this or but the reality is it's not that it's necessarily the black or the white that's the causal right that's the category they've been assigned to and when you look at it from that perspective they say okay well now now we can look at it as these are people why are this person in this category why is this person in that category and why do we feed so much into these categorical names to where we think that there's a causal relationship there when there's that none really exists. And is, is there, you know, the racial disparity, but is there also a class disparity in, in the way that these labels are applied? For sure. Um, when we talk about marginalized communities, generally speaking, at least in the field of economics, it's white male is the standard. And then anything that's outside of that is considered underrepresented, underrepresented minority. So when they do these, some of these regressions or looking at some of these social issues, They'll say, well, underrepresented minorities, as though this is one whole box that that's the same. But when you disaggregate out of and then that doesn't look so bad because you can include women as an underrepresented minority because they're not white male. And it gives the the illusion 
that the disparities aren't as large as they actually are, right? So it's all about the way of framing their work so that it promotes whatever narrative that they're trying to establish from the beginning. But it's, to me, it's very disingenuous to do it that way because then it's like, do you really want to know what underrepresented minorities are going through? If you're going to just lump them to this one big group and think that though you're now you're done. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I, but you saying that, you know, makes me, me think of this question. You know, when I think about the nineties, when we were all were made terrified about drug addicts. Um, and, and to me that, you know, there's this, this focus on black communities, absent fathers, black homes, et cetera. And I don't, th- that aggregation didn't seem to happen in the nineties, but it does seem to happen when we talk about opioids. And I'm wondering you know, is there a reason why? Is there, you know, if we would have lumped women into the category in the 90s, would it have crossed racial lines for, for drug addiction in the 90s too? Um, I would probably think that it would have, right? Um, but that wasn't the story that they wanted to tell, right? They wanted to tell a different story. And so they pulled the facts and figures and studies that supported the study, supported the narrative that they were trying to push forward. The the thing with the opioids and the war on drugs is so fascinating to me because it's and this is why I was so very interested in doing this podcast, because, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I don't pretend to know a lot about the the legal field other than what the average person would know, I would think. But it's it's funny to me that when it was the war on drugs, right, it was all crime, 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 put them in jail, put them in jail, put them in jail. And as soon as the the demographics of those drug users changed, right. Then all of a sudden, the law surrounding the idea of addiction became like, oh, what's a health crisis? But where is the compensation for the people that are sitting in prisons right now because they were still victims of this when it was still a crime to be a drug addict instead of it being a health crisis? What are we doing to transition away from that? And so I'm very curious about how in the legal field that kind of how that kind of idea gets trans gets moved forward. I think I'm saying the right words. Is that a, yeah. How the transition okay. happens. Yes. Carla, you can, you can answer that better than any of us. Um, and, you know, and looking at your population of incarcerated mothers, um, you know, with the transition to the opio- opioid crisis being more egalitarian for a better word, <laughs> lack of a better word, you know, do you see a difference in your population of incarcerated mothers with the transition to mothers of all varieties now being addicted so to, to drugs? I will answer your question in like a roundabout way by first saying I appreciate having the economists on here because we lawyers, when we want to tell a narrative, look to the economists, look to the data, but not but we don't use it in the way that an economist would. There would be caveats where lawyers, scientists, and say, this data doesn't indicate this. We as lawyers want to, and those in policy and decision-making, want to use that data, which we claim is unbiased, in biased ways, right? And so the data that Chantel might have that tells a story, not a story holistically, as she was saying, it shows individual people clumping things together, like people together, right? And then we take that data and we, I mean, the like our profession um, and policymakers take that data and say, let's not ask the question, what happened to the people in this subgroup? Let's assume 
let's impose the narrative on them. And so to the war on drugs versus the opioid crisis, even that wording crisis versus the war um, indicates we are at battle with in war, but in a crisis, we go into what needs to be done. What, how do we address that crisis? Um, and yeah, when the crisis, opiate crisis really started, it, and it should have been for the war, the war on drugs and um, the 80s and 90s, we thought about it as a public health issue. What was going on? What support, what medical um, placement do we need to address the, the use, the substance use disorders within communities? And so it was looked at in a more humane manner because it started off with legitimate prescriptions um, by pharmacists or not by pharmacists, by doctors and uh, given to um, pharmacists who would should have questioned why one doctor, for example, in a city or a town was prescribing so much of one drug to different people. But that we haven't really gotten to those questions. We're still we're still looking at it as a public health issue, which we should, right? Because it's substance use disorder. There is a element of health and need in that. But our society hasn't gotten to that flip side of looking. We're still criminalizing those with the, these disorders, especially Black women who, Latina and Black women, as well, well as um, Indigenous and Native American um, women, are more likely, I'm going to use the data, sorry, uh, to be arrested um, for uh, essentially poverty crimes um, and substance use disorder um, crimes as well. So convicted for those types of issues that we are saying should be public health. There's some um, demographics, Black, Brown, Native, and Indigenous people who still don't benefit from that narrative. So I wanted to chime in here real quick because, again, just the idea of the word crisis puts a different spin on the whole thing, right? It's, It's opioids, it's a crisis. It's crack cocaine. It's a it's a it's a crime, right? And to me, it it, it feels like that almost kind of like the the laws where you got more time for this type of drug than this type of drug. It's uh, it's almost as though the more Eurocentric in nature the drug is, determines whether it's a crisis or not. Yes. Yes. Well, and and what it brings up to me as well is. You know, what what makes Black Tina and Black women end up still incarcerated for opioids, even though we call it a healthcare crisis, and some of that are the disparities in healthcare, right? It's it's the fact that they don't have a doctor that they can go to and get these prescriptions. And you have doctors that don't acknowledge Black pain, yes. and it, right? And so if they are buying their painkillers on the street instead of at a doctor's office, then it is criminalized sooner. It's not an addiction problem. So we have a compounding of various systems, which is exactly what happens with the family law system and the criminal justice system combined, which is, you know, what Carla's work is about. Um, And so, you know, in Carla's work, you've talked about how incarcerated Black mothers face a double bind or even a triple bind. Um, And, you know, what can the legal system do? Or what have, what have you come up with as solutions 
you know, to address that disparity of both lack of access to children, lack of parental rights. I just highlighted the lack of access to healthcare and treatment for, for, for the, for possible drug addiction um, and, and that need, or even pain. Um, and then also being subject to, to mass incarceration. This is a spoiler alert because it's quite obvious in stop criminalizing poverty, people in poverty. That is, and that is what we should do. Uh, we should be addressing the root causes of these, the criminalization. A lot of the laws that we have on the books are in response to some singular or a few instances of harm. And so we aren't looking at what caused the harm. If you think about restorative justice and bringing the people together to discuss who was harmed and how can you make that right in a way that is legitimate and I feel safer. Instead, we say you chose to do a harm. We don't really care about why, what happened to you. Again, that question, um, we're just going to throw you away and not care that you have children who love you, that you have mothered, um, that do not have anybody else to support them. And so we're going to throw them into um, the family regulation system which doesn't help anyone in the, in regards to the connection to the community and the stability that a child needs as they grow. Um, that, so there is this separation from families um, through the incarceration system, um, the criminal legal system, and through the family regulation system that we have yet to really reckon with. Those who are on the ground seeing this are trying to yell at everybody else saying, what are we doing? We are not supporting families. We claim to be a nation that looks and focuses on families. And what we are continuing to do is demolish and destroy families in what is called the um, civil uh, death penalty, which is the termination of parental rights. So all of that put together is the result. But I would love for us as a society to look at what happened? Stop criminalizing Black people, Black mothers, um, and that could be a starting point. And also, oh, I would like go to, ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, I would no, no, I was going to say that. Um, there's a paper, and it's, it's, it's quite interesting that when you asked me to be on this panel, because I just was a discussant for a paper that Dr. Samuel Myers is working on at the University of Minnesota, where they're looking at this exact same thing, mm-hmm. which is um, de- they're saying that there's been a trend from 2000 to 2016, and there's been a close in the racial disparities in incarcer- female incarceration rates. And my first question when he first told me this was like, are, is it because more Black women or less Black women are being arrested? Like, which, where's the movement? Is the Black women moving down, white women moving up? And that's exactly what it is. So he said that I think the the BJS study that they quoted said that Black women were uh, down 40% as far as being in state prisons, and 75% of that 40% was because of the the reduction in drug-related crimes. Whereas for white women, theirs is up 70%, and 66% of that is because of an increase in drug-related crimes. So when you take those numbers on on their own, it seems like, oh, well, we're making so much progress. We're finally starting to close these racial disparity gaps. And he links it to um, 
the the she's looking for the connection between also reduce reduced disparities that they've seen in child placement in the well in the welfare in the guardian system, right? Uh, when you look at it alone, it sounds like we're making a glass of progress. But then you look at the reality is black women are still incarcerated at almost five times the rate of white women. So are we making progress or are we not? You can't just take this piece of the story and say, oh, well, great, everything's doing well. When the reality is, in what set of circumstances can you justify anything where black women are incarcerated at that level more than white women? And the same can be seen for, for black men as well, right? Um, the incarceration rates across the board. So, you know, it, it gets dangerous whenever you just use economics and just pull data and don't have a policy or or something attached to it because they can take those same numbers that Dr. Myers is working with and apply them in a way that, that is not in, that's not the intent of his work. And we find that a lot when you're just when we deal with economics, you know, they just it's just the data. Economics is people at its core. So you have to incorporate the fact that there are people involved here. And so you can't just run by the numbers. A lot of people will say that about the numbers for women as well. Like, right, that, well, isn't it equal? And it's like, where did we start off with? Like, we are not equal in that, right? <laughs> if you right. just look at, as you said, the numbers, it's like, why are you focusing on this? Like, white women are getting incarcerated more. It's like, no, that's one. I don't want anybody incarcerated, really. So, like, I'm not saying, yeah, we're winning because more people are getting incarcerated. It's the fact that where we started and where we are are not equal. So, yeah. Exactly. So, just another version of the whole idea about endowments. This is just a different type of endowment, and what that initial endowment can can place you in the whole order of things, um, for sure. And when it makes me think about, um, you know, especially when it comes to mothers, we still live in a society, you know, that assumes that mothers are going to be primary caregivers. Um, and, and we still live in a society where if the mother is absent, the child is probably taken away from the family. Um, and so the idea that, you know, white women being are being incarcerated at higher rates, it just means more families are being torn apart. Um, and, and that has to have a long term impact on communities and the economy as a whole. You've got a, you've got more people in another generation, you know, who are who are put into a foster care system that is also broken, um, and, and that can't be a positive. And this is a repeated cycle of poverty, right? You put a, a set of people that are already poor, and then you put them in the incarceration system and take away their children, right? And and they don't have the funds to go and try to make sure that they can get their children when they get out, right? Or even try to keep that relationship going, and then they finally get out. And they're back in the same neighborhoods, usually, that they came from, which are poor neighborhoods. But in order to get their children back, they have to be in better neighborhoods. They have to have better jobs. But they have this criminal justice, criminal record hanging over their head. And there's really no way for them to get out of it. And then we have these children growing up in poverty. And there's studies. There was a study done just, I think I just saw it on Twitter yesterday, that links poverty to actual brain function in, in children, in babies. They said that women, with they get more money. I think in cash transfers, their the high frequency brains brain levels are more active in those children than the ones who get almost nothing. So now we have this whole actual causal effect that we couldn't see before. We could just say they're correlated, but there's no causation. Now they're doing these studies where they're establishing that causal thing. And if that happens, then we're just starting to cycle all over again, right? We're never getting. We're never moving forward. Huh. That, I mean, I would wonder, I, you know, I wonder why. 
Um, well, actually, I, I think I know why, but I won't s- speculate because I haven't done the research and we are professors. <laughs> so <laughs> I won't say why I think, you know, the direct link to, to money um, impacts the brain development. But, you know, we are in a capitalist society and you can't survive without money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being poor is a crime, as, as Carla's work has shown. Um, and, and being poor means you're hungry. Being poor means you don't have access to housing. And how can you parent a child and support a child and feed a child um, so that their brain can develop if you do not have the resources? We don't have a floor in this country at all. And reading um, the summaries about that study that Chantel mentioned, it kind of, not kind of, it comes to to me, it confirms that like the narrative that um, black and brown, uh, black and brown mothers don't care are bad mothers um because the majority of the participants in that study were black and brown um and the fact that their children's their baby's brain activity increased um one can then think that it's because they invested more they were less stressed out they could find childcare, they could focus on their children and but the assumption would be that bad mother narrative is that, oh, they went to buy X, Y, and Z for themselves. But receiving extra money versus the control group that I think it was like over $300 um, in the variable group and $20 about for in the control group, they did, their children were able to like increase brain activity. The study then says there's too like too much unknown right now because they're just babies. And so they need time, they need time to then investigate what that means when they're able to like explain and do actual tests, cognitive tests. Um, but there's power in even having that study done. We, I was just talking to my students about it like earlier um, recently about that study. So yeah, it, there's just right. powerful things going on right now. Right, but even well, outside and, of the and, brain, even outside of the brain function, the fact that these these children are are raised in 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 in, in poverty already, we know as, as economists, and you can there's tons of studies about this. It says if you're in poverty, you have lower levels of academic of educational attainment. Your your wage earnings, like over the course of your lifetime, are automatically lower. All these things are elevated because you're starting from a place of poverty. So outside of the fact that it's an actual physical thing, which is this this paper is saying, right? It's saying this is an actual health problem. It's not just a, a personal, you know, problem of I just don't have any money. This is causing actual health problems outside of lack lack of access to health care, right? This is a whole separate thing in and of itself. And it's it's also known that economic mobility is very difficult when you're on the lower end. So where is your where is your way out, right? If we continue this cycle, there's no way to get out of this cycle that that begins in poverty and being in incarceration just exacerbates that, right? A lot, so many people are in prison for crimes of economics. You know, we have to fix why they're there. Right? Well, and the, and the bad mother narrative, the bad black mother narrative, is what fuels the foster care system. It's the idea that these kids are going to be better off. Because these mothers of color are just bad mothers and there's nothing that can be done about it. And so it's better off if we take them out of the home. If it's if we reconcile with the fact that there isn't bad mothering, it's poor mothering and they just need resources. Perhaps the foster care system will be more invested in keeping kids in the home and keeping families together instead of thinking best interest of the child is to remove them from their parents in the first place. 
And isn't there a lot of, of bias in even determining what's in the best interest of the child, right? So there's yes. a lot, it's a lot to that. Like who makes that decision? Why is it different here than here? It's, it's, there's no consistency that makes any type of sense that I can figure out, except for how, who that person is that's making that judgment call at that time. Yeah. And they come into it with all of their external biases. Correct. Very much. I realized I hadn't actually situated my article in this, or even said what the title was. Well, I will go ahead and let, well, I'll give you the pitch so that you can do it. So, you know, Carla's article um, is, you know, you talks about two concepts and I, I want you to one, explain what those concepts are. Okay. Um, and the show is called Getting Common. And I like to explain things for lay people on Getting Common. And Carla's title includes the terms New Jim Crow, and it also includes the term Jane Crow. And what I like about those two terms is that it harkens back to work to very important Black women. So Carla, why don't you explain, you know, what inspired that title and just situate your paper in our conversation? Yeah. Um, I will give the backstory and then go into the... um, the legalese part of it. Um, When I was formerly at um, Florida State College of Law, I had run, created a clinic, which means my law students actually take on cases. They go into the community to do legal work. And one of the projects that I created for the students was that they would go into prisons and jails and offer family law workshops for women who were incarcerated in those facilities. Because of, the COVID, because of COVID, we had to go um, less direct routes. And so my students sent a um, packet of material to a mother who was interested in the family regulation system and her rights. She sent this positive, amazing letter back um, saying, just thank you so much. Because of the material that you sent me, I was able to file something and protect my rights. Yay for my clinic students. They were successful. However... Florida has an absolute right to counsel, so to a lawyer in these systems. Um, And so she wouldn't have made enough money to not have been eligible for an actual lawyer. And so it got me thinking about the problems that their appointed counsel have when they're trying to protect their clients, mothers who are incarcerated, their parental rights in the family regulation system. So we have the incarceration system, the new Jim Crow, which was a term coined by Michelle Alexander in the new Jim Crow, looking at how mass incarceration, the criminal legal system is another form of subjugation for black people. Or really for her, for the new Jim Crow was focused on black men specifically and drug um, um, crimes and how essentially it is another form of surveillance and control. The new Jane Crow focused on Jane Crow being a term that Polly Murray um, coined to focus on the exclusion and discrimination of black women um, from employment, um, but now has been, so Jane Crow and the new Jane Crow has been used to talk about the family regulation system and the termination of parental rights, uh, especially for mothers. 
And I use those terms not to indicate that there is a gender divide, um, because Michelle Alexander has admitted that she was essentially wrong in only focusing on, on Black men. Um, because as there was a discussion about the disproportionate amount of Black men in the system, silently, Black women's um, increase in incarceration was occurring. Um, and so there is now this understanding of the new Jim Crow and the J- new Jane Crow in the intersection of mothers who are incarcerated who want to keep their, their children and avoid the civil legal death penalty, um, which is, again, the termination of parental rights. And so my piece is really um, the, the part of the title besides the new Jim and Jane Crow intersect is challenges to defending the parental rights of mothers during incarceration. And it goes into a lot of what we're talking about, um, which is why I kept referring to it. And I was like, I haven't actually explained what it's about. It's about the narrative. Like, how does a lawyer with their own bias, um, as professors, we know that we come in with bias, but also our students come in with a, a lot of misinformation that we need to then tell them, no, 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 that's not how the real world works, right? Like, you might think this is what happens and this is your privilege, um, but when a person is incarcerated or it's charged, this is what actually happens. Um, and so that's, so it's t- the bias by attorneys um, who are supposed to be representing these mothers. Um, the narrative piece, um, the strategy, how do you really communicate with your client when there's so many barriers to just communication? Um, surveillance by um, prison staff when you are calling your client Um, or a visit, you might travel uh, an hour and a half away to meet with your client and the prison or the jail is on lockdown. And so you can't meet with your client. Letters, legal mail is not supposed to be tracked um, or reviewed, um, but we don't know. Um, And so all of these things, and then once they get out, that doesn't end these challenges um, because of what Chantel had talked about before about where people live when they're released, when mothers, like they usually go back to the communities where they were before. Um, But a judge might not like that. And so how does a lawyer explain, even if you don't like it, nobody's hiring a um, black woman with a criminal record, the educational attainment, they're not able to access um, the same types of privileges that your honor, you were able to access. Um, and as a result, the termination happens. And so two of the um, non-reformist reforms that I suggest in the article are better access to um, information while people, women are incarcerated, by, while mothers are incarcerated, so law libraries, um, so that they're not dependent on a clinic to randomly send them material. Uh, and the other piece is multidisciplinary teams, so that it's not just that one lawyer traveling and defending the mother's parental rights, but it's a social worker, it's paralegals, it's people, parent counsels, um, directly impacted um, formerly incarcerated parents, for example, on that team to keep each other honest as they're trying to um, mitigate the damage um, from a society that does not support mothers who are incarcerated, who are trying to keep their parental rights in place. Wow. 
how often, I mean, you know, if, if, you know, if a mother's children are put in the foster care system while they are incarcerated, you know, is there any chance to maintain contact with their children while they're in the system? It's hard. Um, there's just met too, a lot of obstacles. One that I mentioned, distance. Um, parents, families are more likely in poverty before incarceration. And then when that um, person who was a primary um, caregiver and financial support then um, is incarcerated, the family doesn't have the resources to travel, to meet, to visit. Um, And then once you're going through the visits, children are like, are traumatized by the searches, the waits in line, that whole process to then see their mother for a little bit. And so some mothers have said, don't bring them back because it's just too hard. I can see the trauma. Um, calls are expensive, very expensive. Uh, things called video visits. I refuse to call them that because they're not actually visits. It's really what we're doing now, uh, but not with the like the same technology. Um, and so they're like video conferences, um, and those are expensive. And again, um, hard to afford. Um, but yeah, it's really, really hard. If anybody brings a child to the prison, it's hard on the child, all on the prison. I mean, not on the prison, on the parent. But also, that doesn't mean that it shouldn't happen because children want to be with their parents. So I had a. I'm glad you brought that up because, um, in your paper, and I'm glad that you that you talked about this in your paper because there is a difference between jails and prisons, right? So that's the, a whole different dynamic. I know most jails now, their only visitation is video visitation. Um, they don't even allow the, the personal in, in, yeah. um, interaction. And there are, especially with the, the type of drug, drug uh, crimes, there's, a, there's sometimes where there are people that do their whole time in the jail system and not in the prison system. But in an and even what about even the ones who get arrested and they are in there because they they fall victim to the bail system, right? I mean, they can be in there for an extended amount of time that could could extend past whatever the the set number of months it is that you're allowed to have your children in the in the family regulation system before your rights are terminated without even having being proved found guilty of anything yet, just because they're poor, just because they're poor. And that I think there's there's a lot to be done work to be done on that side. But my another question I wanted to ask or 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 think about is that much of criminal justice is done on the state level, right? But this is a national problem. So should these these laws be done at the federal level to cover everybody, or would it have to be a state by state issue? And and what kind of rollout would that look like? Oh, right? that's it's, a- it's mind boggling. <laughs> Yeah, because um, I'm going to butcher the acronym, um, ASFA, um, Adoption and Safe Families Act, um, which makes that timeline um, of like 15 to 22 months or 17 to 22. I'm looking on the numbers right now. Um, but of, out of 22 months, a certain amount of time, the parent is not with the child. The court can terminate the parental rights. That is a federal statute um, that was imposed on the state's in the 90s, I want to say 97 in my head um, is coming up, but I might be wrong, but I knew it was in the 90s. Um, I know it's in the 90s. Um, and it was a way they said um, to help families. 
And really, it led to the destruction of even more families because uh, they said, states, you will get money from us only if you impose these timelines. And there are statutes or sorry, um, bills on the federal level that are trying to increase the, the timeline. Um, and certain states have exceptions for parents who are incarcerated. So it can be on the state level, but as you said, it's essentially justice by geography. Certain states will recognize the humanity of mothers who are incarcerated and others will not. Um, And so if there is not a change on the federal level, we will continue to have that access by geography, but also the destruction of um, families. So it seems that, you know, ending the cash bail system, which so many people think is a controversial position, uh, but, you know, the end of cash bail, which is the problem that Chantal highlights, you know, you're too poor to afford your bail, could keep families together, which could, of course, have that larger economic impact. You know, you're outside of the economy when you're sitting in jail waiting just to go to trial. You could possibly be found innocent. Um, so it's either forcing you to take a plea bargain, which still gives you a record because you could take a plea and get out of jail sooner and not lose your child but you come out with a record versus sitting and waiting to go to trial when you know you're innocent, but then not having your children. So there's no, there's no good choice for a mother who's poor. Um, And there can't be any positive economic impact, Chantal, I'm sure, um, to pulling families apart in this way or to people who are able-bodied sitting in prison waiting for trial. Correct. Um, And even outside of sitting in prison, even if, let's say, they were found guilty and they were sent to for a longer sentence, but the sentence has an end date, right? Like there's an end date in sight. Um, But to sit there and not allow these these incarcerated people access to something that will allow them to effectively change their outcomes once they leave and then look curiously when the recidivism rates don't, don't, don't change, you know, it to me seems as though it seems like it seems crazy, right? Like you you want something to be different, but then you don't do anything to make things different. Or you might do one thing and say, oh, well now it's it's less, you know, the percentage of of black women that's being incarcerated is going down. So it's like they give with one hand and then it's almost like they take with the other by allowing these other things to still remain and, and circulate in these, communities with these poor, poor, um, these people in poverty, right? Or, or, or just as I'm, you're being punished twice for not having money, right? So I don't see how that is encouraging growth and growth in the economy, right? It's, this is a, this is a hit to GDP. We don't have income to tax, right? Mm-hmm. This is talk about money. We want more money so we can make more money so we can tax you more. If you're sitting in prison, you're costing, right? So it, it seems it seems counterintuitive to me um, the way these two systems kind of work together to continue the cycle. You know, I always say, you know, as as the business law professor, um, you know, it's it's all about the free market and the business case until you start talking about race. Then all of a sudden, the economics don't matter, um, and we don't like to acknowledge that race you know, undoes all free market economics every single time. And it's like, I feel like it's that X factor when I read, you know, economic studies. It's like, huh, 
why didn't we maximize wealth here? Why didn't we maximize wealth there? Um, and it's that one thing that we don't want to say is the reason that we, for some reason, as a society, aren't maximizing wealth. There's no reason to have this many people in prison if you want to maximize wealth. Correct. Period. And then you know, economists, you know, there's always a trade-off in the markets between efficiency and equity, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're the efficiency-minded person, you want to be you want the market to work at the most efficient way, then it's one of the core principles of economics that if you uh, false, not falsely, if you take the economy out of, out of equilibrium by restricting the labor pool, right, then you're automatically creating a point of inefficiency. So just from the, the economics alone, you don't want to do anything that will, will sway something away from this natural state of equilibrium that you say that you want to achieve because you're the efficiency-minded minded ec- economist and not so much the equity-minded economist, right? So either way, either way you look at it, it doesn't make economic sense for you to falsely restrict a labor supply either by incarceration or by any type of discrimination in the labor market. It doesn't make economic sense um, at all. And we can see that playing itself out and the reduced labor force participation rate that we have going on now, that everyone's so upset that we have all these jobs and no one's taking them. Well, because these people have figured out a way that they don't have to be a part of this market anymore, right? And now it's, now it's another problem. Oh, they don't want to work, or they're lazy, or they're this, or that. This is the system that, that's, that you created, and now you're <laughs> right. mad because, because this is the way it's working. This is what you created. So anyway. Yeah, there are plenty of people in prison who I'm sure would want to work at Chipotle and would rather work at Chipotle or wherever for a minimum wage than to be incarcerated. But they are sitting in prison on a marijuana charge as some people are getting rich off marijuana right now. Right. And we don't reconcile that. And the irrational piece is always race. Like the lack of rationality in the economy is always race, in my opinion. Let me do my law professor disclaimer. In <laughs> right, but I don't but see any other things. races. Specific, yeah, specific races. races, right? Very specific the, races. The amount of brain trust that we lose because people are incarcerated is baffling. Um, and to your point, it's because we didn't give them education. We didn't that access to education wasn't there, but also it's because of race, like. All of it goes, I agree with you. All of it seems to go back to that point. And the more that we can have those conversations, even in states that won't allow it to happen, the better we would be as a society. Now, I'd like for us to talk a little bit about solutions with our last few minutes. Um, Let's try to be like last week I asked for solutions and and India was like all super positive. And I was like, that never happens here. So so maybe y'all will have some positive, positive, optimistic solutions. So I'll start with Chantal. Um, Do you have any solutions, you know, to resolve this either, you know, personally or from your scholarship of, you know, what we can do to resolve these disparities? Well, I'll say the ones that are the most common and and not that they're not true, right? Increased <laughs> access to, I mean, increased access to education, better access to healthcare, um, more affordable housing, right? All of these things are all true, right? They were all, they were all play a role in, in trying to close these gaps. Um, but, and, and this is my personal opinion, it all has to start with a level of, 
endowment that poor communities do not have and automatically start them at a from a place of need in comparison to other communities. So here I am making a case for reparations. That's, That's always my solution. That is always yes. literally my solution. Um, because yes. I think there is no way to make up for 400 years. I think you keep running into a wall and bumping your head against a wall if you don't get to simply cash enhance. The study about poor mothers shows it. Um, you know, the, you know, if I look at housing, like, you know, if, if every problem ends at the irrational point of race and we've got redlining and banking and access to capital when you want to start a business and, uh, you know, education and incarcerate, like everything has this irrational economic point that starts and ends with race. Um, and then you have the examples of giving money to mothers, you know, I have the example of the Walker program we have in Lexington, where we have simply given Black-owned businesses money and not that much money, you know, like no business has gotten more than $10,000 and we have six new businesses in town with less than $10,000 a business, $10,000 or less. It doesn't take much to start to bridge that gap, but it takes unrestricted cash in the hands to make a difference. As long as we are capitalists, it's going to take money. Um, and, you know, it doesn't take hugs. It doesn't take, you know, there's, there's only so much that could be done with like learning to love each other. Um, if you're going to be in a capitalist society, you got to give people cash. Um, but I get accused of being like the harsh business professor. So I'm glad I have an economist on. So someone agrees with me. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah wants for to- sure. I mean, you know, they say, you know, Everyone that says money doesn't matter is because they're the ones who don't need money, right? To everyone else, money matters. So we can't pretend that this is not a thing, right? And and there's a narrative of, oh, well, we'll give them this money and they won't know what to do with it, or they'll spend it on this, or they're spending it on that. But any every other, no, it's not other, there have been other groups of people who they've given reparations to because they knew they were supposed to. But when it comes to African-Americans or even Native Americans, right, they have a, a huge case all on the all on their own. Right. For the same type of action from the from the U.S. government. Totally valid. But, you know, and, or, or or even 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 inside a black community, they'll say, um, you know, there's going to go out and buy cars and, you know, do this and, and that and the other, you know, they, they don't know how to manage money. And I will make the case that black people and poor people are great at managing money because that's they don't have any. So they make it straight. So they are, we should be looking to them on how to manage money because they know how to make that work. Um, and whatever they choose to do with their money is up to them, just like it is for everyone else that has money, right? All right, now, Carla, you run a clinic and you have been a movement lawyer. Um, so what do you have... Do you have any legal ideas and legal solutions? I know you have some in your paper, but, you know, any other legal interventions for these issues? As an educator, I want my students to realize that lawyers are not the end-all be-all. So that, like, that is my solution. It's like being in the community, engaging in the work so that when bills come up, um, they're not thinking of, oh, this will make sense 
with my privilege, but how will this impact others who don't look like me, who don't have the privilege I have? Um, and so working not in silos, but in community with others who may be directly impacted by that bill. You know, these episodes always go so quickly. Um, we didn't even get to talk about voting. I wanted to talk about voting and like incarcerated <laughs> mothers and voting. And I just don't have time. Um, and it's in part because I love both these women so much. And it's great to have them as colleagues. I feel very blessed and privileged to be on a faculty with with people like this who are so smart. And our conversations are like this all the time. Um, <laughs> our conversations are totally like this all the time um, with a little bit of gossip thrown in. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I want to just... Thank both of you so much for being on the show and for taking the time out. Um, I will have to have you back and we need like a Chantal paper focused episode with like the same three of us again. Um, I love vibing on the labor economic stuff. Her stuff is phenomenal. And I, I think everyone should get a chance to listen to it. So thank you both for being here and for taking the time. I would like to thank all of you for tuning in to this episode of Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere that podcasts are streamed and on the Voice America Network. You can also watch the videos on the show YouTube channel. Um, For Black History Month, I'm doing a spotlight on Black women's issues. So every episode throughout February will be focusing on Black women. So next week, we will have Marissa jackson So and Madiba Denny, who will continue this Black History Month spotlight on an episode entitled Black Women Voters as Property. So we will bring up some of the voting issues we were going to talk about today, next week with Madiba and Marissa. Um, In that episode, we will play a particular focus on Black women's role in the Democratic Party. We'll start with Charlie Chisholm, and we will run forward. Feel free to send me episodes. Um, Send me emails through the show page. Uh, You can also reach out to me on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.